We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Without Warning. On September 26, 1980, it was written by Lynn Freeman, Daniel Grodnick, Ben Nett, and Steve Mathis, directed by Graydon Clark, and released by Filmways Pictures. In the first draft, the alien hunted humans with a simple bow and arrow. (laughs) The original title was The Warning, which kind of means the exact opposite of the eventual title. (laughs) That's interesting. I like the idea that it was sort of a simple tool that he got from Earth, I presume, or... I don't know. Okay. He just brought his bow and arrow. Or maybe it's just one of those types of things that... uh, All cultures make. All cultures invent, yeah. Yeah. Without Warning was made for $150,000, half of which was spent on Landau and Palance alone. That does not surprise me. The yeah. film shot in three weeks. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's pretty impressive. Another $19,000 of the remaining 75000 went to Rick Baker for developing the alien headpiece, featured in all of the film's marketing materials, but maybe two minutes of the film. Did everybody else work for free? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Producer-writer Daniel Grodnick insists that Baker was well worth the money. The film is credited with having been an inspiration for 1987's Predator, and both films feature Kevin Peter Hall as their lead alien invaders. He's the guy in the suit for both movies. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was asking you when we were watching, I'm like, what, you know, what year did Predator come out? Yeah, it was much later, but definitely inspired by this. Well, it's a great concept. I mean, not the best execution, but it's a, I like the concept of, yeah. of somebody coming to, to hunt in this fertile land of things to hunt. Yeah. <laughs> this film marked the fifth and final collaboration between director Graydon Clark and cinematographer Dean Coondy. This was also a debut performance for David Caruso. Yeah, he's not in it for very long. Yeah. We start the film in POV, moving through a riverbed at daybreak. We see a hunter with a big cigar. I, I like my my first note is right about the credits. Yeah, because they're just sim- such simple like block letters, mm-hmm. and then the title for without warning is no bigger or smaller than any of the other names. It could have just yeah. been another actor's name. Yeah, so <laughs> my note was tonight's episode without warning. Yeah, <laughs> it just it just immediately just felt like the TV episode title yeah. like yeah. MacGyver or something that at the bottom. The hunter heads to his RV to wake up his son Randy to start hunting. The son's mustache makes him look about 40, <laughs> and the dad looks like he's maybe 50, but it turns out Randy here was about 22 when they were filming, and the dad's in his early 60s. So. I, I mean, I think the problem with watching these 80s movies is that everybody looks old. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they, they still they were, look like that. They all like grow that. up to be the dads of now. <laughs> Randy drinks some of the water from this stream and says it tastes funny. I don't know why he's drinking out of the stream. Do they not bring anything? They have an RV. Well, I guess... I, from what I have can see of Cameron Mitchell's character of Hunter, uh, it's probably like... He doesn't bring anything. Yeah, it's like you live off the land. You, yeah. you drink from the stream and you do this. And Then it should have been a pickup truck, not an RV. Doesn't he also say it smells funny? This word smells funny. 
tastes funny too. Yeah. And I'm first like, it stunk, what? and then I put my mouth. Right. In. I was like, why? Why did you start drinking it if it smelled <laughs> funny in the first place? <laughs> yeah. The hunter dad is disappointed that his son brought a bunch of books to read. He calls the kid out for not being enough of a man, even discharging his own shotgun right over the kid's shoulder. Without warning, just, just to freak him out. But that's, that's, that is not following gun safety rules. No, I don't think that's, uh, that's allowed. When Dad isn't looking, Randy dumps his shotgun shells in the river, and Dad catches him later reading a book and contemplates murdering his own son for a moment. <laughs> I don't know if it was contemplating or full-on, I'm going to murder this person. Yeah, but he points his shotgun at the kid while he's reading, and then at the last second, like something distracts him and he looks away. And he gets hit with a couple meat frisbees. <laughs> Toothy meat frisbees. Yeah. They look like fleshy starfish with webbed appendages. And then some worms come out of the tips of them and bore into the victim's clothes and into the skin, immediately paralyzing him. Is this really hunting? Like, it seems like these things chase you. Yeah, he's yeah. not doing a lot of the work. Yeah, I feel well, like even at least a predator went up and like would grab people and rip their heads and spines out of their bodies and whatnot but it's kind of like the way i don't think there's any argument that predator did this premise better (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's also kind of like in the same way that those guys from the island were fishing you know oh just have like a machine that does everything for you and you just come home with the trophy and go look what i caught it's like Mm -hmm. you didn't catch that your fucking frisbees did that Yeah. yeah i think a lot of human hunters out there yeah are not much much better than this in terms of what they're doing to to catch these animals yeah It's like the dog that goes out and gets the duck for you. But the duck is like flying and the dog jumps into the air to get it. (laughs) He stumbles toward his son who picks up his empty shotgun and pulls the trigger uselessly. I don't know what he was going to do, like shoot the patches off of his dad. Well, I think that he sees the alien. He sees something that he figures he can shoot at. Or maybe he sees the frisbee thing coming at him and he... Or he's finally had it with his well, yeah, dad. Yeah, it's like the ultimate skeet shooting, right? You're like throwing those clay pigeons right. in the air, but these have teeth. And they're coming at and you. they're coming towards you. Cleopatra coming at you. Cleopatra coming at you. But another space waffle gets frisbeed directly into camera and the kid bites it. We cut somewhere else as Beth and Sandy are approaching Greg and Tom for a road trip. Beth and Tom are a couple and... Greg and Sandy are being set up on a blind date. Tom and Beth hop in the front seat of their big yellow van and they hit the road. They pull up to what looks like an abandoned gas station. Tom tries honking the horn for service before getting out to fill the van himself. The girls have to hit the restroom, but nearly run right into a dead bobcat hanging from a tree. They find the ladies' room locked and so push their way into the men's room where Sandy sees a lot of scribbling all over the walls but is for some reason entranced by a specific message. No chance, no help, no escape. I don't know why that would stand out at all among this graffiti. There's so much yeah. stuff there. And also, why would you take it to mean anything more than, you know, the, the rest of it? Yeah. And and why does it almost become the tagline of the movie? Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, an old man exits the stall and asks what the hell she's doing in here. And then she asks him what the words on the wall mean. I'm not clear what sort of answer she's expecting, Unless she suspects that it's a pop culture reference or something that she didn't get. Presumably she knows what these words mean. And without any context, the man can't know any more than her. But why doesn't she care about the rest of the graffiti? 
Why isn't she asking who Riff Randall is or what Viva HD Stanton means? Or what a good time really is. <laughs> yeah, what is a good time? I'm not calling that number until I have more clarity. Nah, I'm going to call it. I'm assuming they're just the names of crew members, but still. The old man looks very confused and answers, I can't figure out kids today. Even though it seems from something later in the film that he may have written this himself. Oh, he definitely wrote it. <laughs> Tom hasn't had any luck getting into the gas station, but realizes this kind of pump doesn't lock, so they might just steal a tank of gas here. The girls come back, and Beth seems just as perturbed as Sandy about the message on the wall. You know, you guys write really weird things on bathroom walls. What are you talking about? Somebody wrote, no chance, no help, no escape. Uh, yeah, if she actually said that to a dude, he would have been like, yes. Yes, yeah. we do. Yes. There would have been no, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I might have been, what do you mean? And then when she said that, I'd be like, what's weird about that? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, it was directions to find a body or something. Tom suggests they head out without paying for the gas, but Sandy and Greg are not cool with this, and they move inside, where they find a mostly empty storefront with an odd collection of taxidermied animals. Tom finds a baseball cap full of wood shavings and baby rats. <laughs> That are, like, actively breastfeeding. Like, there's a mama yeah. rat with a bunch of baby rats. I, what, I like the reaction that they're like, oh, this is so cute. Yeah. Like, they weren't, like, horrified by it. Yeah. Sandy seems to have changed her tune and now endorses the leave without paying for gas plan as the various contorted animal faces on the wall fully creep her out. Suddenly, a new contorted face joins them. It belongs <laughs> to Jack Pallets, here playing the owner-operator of the gas station, who gets the obligatory... Oh, I'd stay away from there if I was you for this film. Oh, I'd, I'd stay away from there if I was you. He tells them it's hunting season, and there have been a few accidents with strangers in these parts. Sandy asks if he killed all these animals, and why. He tells her that she hasn't lived if she's never been hunting for sport, but also that he didn't hunt these ones for sport, but rather for food, because he eats every part but the head, apparently. But, do, but there are animals in there that you don't hunt for food like the bobcat hanging outside like that's delicious not traditionally <laughs> a food hunted animal i don't know maybe it is I don't and know also a lot of these animals are fully taxidermied so you didn't eat them for food oh yeah you, well, you, you scoop out the insides yeah oh, you, the, you do but the all the flavors in the crust <laughs> <laughs> there's not actually still meat inside these you know that right there's like a foam no it's cord meat. inside They're there meat puppets <laughs> and the sport is in the tracking and the hunting the kids start to leave, and Palance slams the door shut in front of them until they promise not to head down to the lake. Back by the river, where the father and son died in the cold open, a troop leader is marching a group of Boy Scouts beside the water. He tells them the story of the Guapo Native American tribe, and the kids ask if they killed Custer, and he says no. The Guapo were famous for raising beans. They were a, a bean-raising tribe. Apparently there was a tribe referred to as the Wapo in Northern California, and according to their Wikipedia page, the name is an Americanization of the Spanish term Guapo, which they were called by the invading Mexican forces they sparred with before eventually signing a peace treaty in 1836. Alas, no mention was made of their affinity for bean farming. Or sweaters. <laughs> it's a sweater. <laughs> Would you say that I have a plethora? The scout leader tells the kids that they are never lost because they are prepared with a compass. 
because we have our compass. And he does say compass, <laughs> yeah. the same as Elliot Gould did. Magnetic field up for the compass. And last flight of the Noah's Ark. Was I this think a 1980s maybe, thing? Were we? Have we been saying it wrong our whole lives? Probably. Now wow. I now I have to be weird and say compass. Yeah, I've I've heard, I've heard it said. Uh, ben. <laughs> Ben Stiller said it in Mystery Men. I don't need a compass to tell me which way the wind shines. <laughs> to be fair, it is spelled that way. So it's weird that we don't say it that way. He tells the kids to split up and find rocks and sticks for their parents to throw away when they get home. The scout leader leaves the kids unattended to approach the RV he found and seems weirdly invested in whether or not it's occupied. Uh, well, the, And the reason is because his compass is not working. Right. So he thinks he's lost even though... You presumably just got out of the car here because mm-hmm. you're talking to these kids like you just got started on your adventure. Yeah. So you could probably see your vehicle. You don't need help from someone else yet. Uh, also, I mean, is this part of the alien thing or is it just that his compass is broken? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I would assume. Yeah, they never really it, go into that. I'm assuming it's just alien interference. Maybe there's a nun that left a radio right next to his compass. <laughs> she wasn't a nun. But he starts pounding on this door to the motorhome and saying that he needs some help for some reason. I've got some Cub Scouts down the way, and and my boosters are killing me. <laughs> I'm not clear what he thought might be in this RV. Maybe they would just open it up and offer to drive all the kids home before they even set up camp. Does he need someone to literally carry him around? Why is he mentioning blisters? The scout leader sees a shape in the tall grass and the sounds of radio static between stations. He moves in the direction of the sound, repeatedly calling out to whoever's there, and finds a shotgun and books. He takes out a cigarette, and then realizing he didn't bring a light, smashes the cigarette between two random rocks, hoping a spark will light the thing. That's not how that works. No, it looks like he's he thinks they're both flintstones, and they're going to make a big enough spark to completely ignite the end of the cigarette Mm -hmm. but he doesn't do that he just smashes it between the rocks yeah (laughs) it's you know it's a strike anywhere cigarette (laughs) but suddenly he gets hit by a couple fleshy demon patches and they get their slimy tendrils into his spine in pov we cast a tall shadow across the scouts and scare them away screaming one kid hangs out (laughs) surprisingly long (laughs) yeah he's like and i'm sure their crew was like run He's like, what? Run! You're supposed to run! (laughs) The yellow van shows up, and Greg, Tom, Sandy, and Beth strip down to bathing suits and jump in the lake. Tom and Beth are immediately making out, so Greg invites Sandy on a walk. And you recognized this lake, didn't you, Yeah, Yeah, it was so random. Uh, I had gone hiking up in the Santa Monica Mountains years ago, like nine, ten years ago. And I took a lot of pictures, and one of the places I took a picture of was this reservoir, because it had a weird that you can see the concrete mm-hmm. pillars, pillars the, at the end the, of it. It's yeah. part, part of a dam. And I'm sure it's like for like fire prevention or something. I don't think it's ever for drinking, but I had seen it and took a picture of it. And when this scene came up, I was like, that looks so familiar. Uh, <laughs> and so I dug up my photos and like, there it is. I, I was right yeah, there. You had basically the same exact photo as the scene when they pull up in the car. Yeah. It was, fr- it was from the same side of it. I'm sure that's yeah. just where the road lets off. Exactly. Yeah. In POV, we approach Tom and Beth making out on the beach. Greg is having trouble getting a signal on the radio he brought. He asks Sandy if she thinks Tom has done fucking Beth yet, and she says, yeah, let's head back. Well, uh, think they're through at the lake? Yeah. Should we get back? Yeah. Okay. When they get back to the lake, Tom and Beth are gone, and all they left behind was the van and a Star Wars blanket. 
Greg tells Sandy that they probably took their party to the back of the van and then weirdly start shouting at the van like their friends aren't probably having sex in it. Uh, Tom, hello. We're back. Yeah? Hey, guys, we're back. Hey. <laughs> uh, we're back. Hello? It's clear at this point that they aren't in the van because if they were, they would for sure have told these two to fuck off by now. Also, it wasn't a rockin'. Yeah. So, so you can okay. come on knocking. <laughs> Not only that, but the doors are open, so you can see right into it. Greg and Sandy have a little picnic on the Star Wars blanket. Greg is almost wearing a Marty McFly costume. He's got the orange vest, he has a plaid button-up, and the jeans, he's just not rocking the denim jacket. Greg will not shut up about their two friends, and Sandy is clearly disappointed that this guy isn't into her. Wouldn't a normal person assume they left you alone to get to know each other? This was, this was supposed to be a blind date adventure for you guys. And Greg is just livid about being abandoned with this girl. Greg leads Sandy across a shallow patch of river when she falls into a pit. And then Greg goes to pull her out and she notices a shed nearby. A sign on the door reads water department. But when they move inside to check it out, they find the corpses of the hunter and son, the scout leader, and their friends who we didn't even get to see die. Yeah. Yeah. Despite remaining fully dressed for the previous scene, Beth is topless here. Though any nudity <laughs> is carefully cropped out, unless this is some family-safe edit of the film. Wait, do you think this was a TV edit? I don't know. I don't think so. But it's crazy that David Caruso was, is already dead <laughs> when he would be the biggest name from this, like, other than the two huge names. He's, yeah, he's the third biggest that, name. Yeah, well, I mean, he probably he's the third biggest name now, but... Yeah. He was probably no. He was nobody at the time, yeah. obviously. I think that was this is this was his first movie, right? Yep. So, but it still seems weird that we're making a horror film and we didn't see these deaths. Yeah, I have a feeling that they shot a scene and they didn't use it because otherwise, it's weird that that Beth is topless here yeah. when she yeah. was wearing That's a swimsuit true. in the last scene. Or and it's weird to have her be topless but not show it. Yeah. I also think it's strange that the only way that we're killing people is with our meat frisbees. You know, why, like, are we not taking any more active attempts at, at, at killing people aside from using these things? We don't even know how these little tendril things work. Like, it could be injecting you with all sorts of, like, painkillers. This could be the most humane hunting of all time. Are you sure, you know, writhe around in pain <laughs> a lot true. if that's the case. It seems pretty awful. <laughs> it's pain increasers. Yeah. Greg and Sandy run crazily back to the van, losing their shit. Even though it took them about 10 minutes to find the shed, it takes them about 12 hours to get back to the van. <laughs> it's pitch black outside. Inside, Greg can't find the keys, but he gets some motivation to look for them in the form of a frisbeast that slaps the windshield, rhythmically clacking its fangs against the glass, while someone else tries to open the van doors from the side. <laughs> And we're assuming that's the alien, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, man, I actually have to do some work. I have to open up this metal can. Presumably, oh, he remembered again, to lock the door. To just throw another Frisbee at them because yeah. he doesn't seem to yeah. have any other weapons. He has no hand-to-hand <laughs> combat skills. Greg finds the keys over the visor and gets the van moving. He drives blindly through a field, eventually putting on the windshield wipers, and then he and Sandy laugh maniacally when the alien flappy thing is brushed harmlessly off the car. There's a lot of, like, uh, bipolar on the part of yeah. Sandy. Yes. Where, where, where she just starts laughing, like, oh, this is actually kind of fun, <laughs> and then going into horrified. Like we didn't just see our friends as corpses. Yeah. 
Greg pulls up to a diner and he makes Sandy sit in the van while he heads in looking for help. He tells the bartender that his friends have been murdered and another patron says, Give the kid a beer, Aggie. No, no, I need help. Aggie refuses to call the police until this traumatized kid tells her all the gruesome details. <laughs> another patron says, You gotta tell us a little more before we call in the sheriff. Because multiple murders might not be enough to wake him up for. <laughs> Maybe this is the same sheriff from Little Dragons and he just ate out of another dented can. Greg pleads with them to just call the police because they're wasting valuable time. All right, I will. Just start from the start. Tell me what happened and I'll call the police. The only possible explanation for what they're putting him through is that he's the fifth kid tonight with this serial killer story and all the rest of them admitted they were joking eventually. Outside, Sandy's getting cold in the van. We see the shadow of an alien walking past and she gets out the passenger side terrified and books it into the woods instead of into the bar where all of the people right. are. It makes no sense. Why would you, A, leave leave the van unless somebody was trying to get into the van? Because that is safer than being in the yeah, woods. Yeah, we've and already then, established that it can't get in. Right. If you're going to leave the van, go to where there's a bunch of people. <laughs> or just lay on the horn out here. Right. Mm -hmm. Immediately, and everyone would come outside. Sandy crashes headlong into Jack Palance's character out in the middle of the woods and then faints of fright. When Greg's recounting of tonight's events includes the weird vampire hamburger patties, they call Sarge over to hear the story. Maybe this guy is the old man that cries wolf to the point that nobody's willing to bother the cops anymore with their bullshit. Are you two guys in cahoots here, Sarge? Did you pay this guy to come in here and spread your crazy story? Look, I wanted you! When they start eating, you don't come to me for help. So this is why they're not calling the police, because they think that this kid's faking it for sarge's sake greg says he has another witness if they don't believe him and then sarge races outside to collect sandy greg realizes quickly she isn't in the car anymore and starts looking around until sarge starts shouting at him like he's a drill sergeant i'm in command here you do as you're told your job is to take orders this is our first hint beside his nickname that sarge will keep having nom flashbacks throughout and forget where he is in time or on the planet leave him alone sarge you're not in the army no more Aggie finally agrees to call the police, and as they move inside, Sarge whispers, No chance, no help, no escape, to nobody in particular. Aggie says the cops are busy rounding up all those Cub Scouts, so I guess they're not dead at least. <laughs> Sarge starts theorizing about the alien plan for invasion and what it might be. <laughs> like rounding them up as if they all scattered? Yeah, <laughs> they're not all in one yeah. place. They like, 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 we're all in it for ourselves, none of them... None of them decided to try to help any of the other ones. There's I, just one lagging behind. I was going to say, I think it would have been great if we went into the shed and there was at least one Boy Scout in yeah, there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sarge starts theorizing what the alien plan for invasion might be, and a man at the bar, Leo, says, You know, Sarge, if I didn't know any better, I'd say you got out of the service on a Section 8. He insists he got an honorable discharge after 26 years of service. Suddenly, Pallet steps in, carrying Sandy's unconscious body, and Greg sits her down in a chair. She seems awake now, like as soon as he puts her down. Sandy says she saw the actual full-size alien, not just his rabid sea anemones. She says it was huge, and Greg suggests that that must be how it got the bodies to the shack. Palance turns around and asks, You found the shack where it stores the bodies? But it seems like he knows more than he's letting on. Yeah. <laughs> like, why do you know about that? <laughs> why do you know that it stores bodies? Suddenly the lights go out and Aggie starts lighting candles. Aggie tells Palance that she might need help dealing with Sarge because he's having an episode. Aggie clearly still doesn't believe any of this and asks Sarge 
If this really is aliens, why haven't the CIA or FBI done anything about it? And Sarge says, because they never do nothing about nothing. Palance asks if they could lead him to the shack, but they say no. I'm pretty sure they could very easily, though. Sarge suggests out of nowhere that the aliens could be shapeshifters based on nothing. He whips his gun out and starts waving it around when a cop opens the door and Sarge shoots him in the gut. Aggie and Palance see to the wounded officer while Sarge apologizes, but then on a dime, he's suddenly blaming Greg for starting all this and raises the gun again. Start it when you come in. Look, mister, I don't know what you're talking about. Palance has to punch Sarge against a wall just to get him to shut up and disarm him. Palance gives the gun to Leo and leaves him in charge of keeping Sarge from doing any more damage. And that doesn't apparently last very long. Nope, not at all. <laughs> Just outside the bar, Palance finds one of the sentient crunch wraps slapped around a wooden beam (laughs) (laughs) and slices it with a hunting knife before prying it off the wall. He tucks it into his pocket lovingly. (laughs) Palance demands that they lead him to the shack because this thing will kill again before they convince the police what's happening without evidence. Greg agrees, but makes Sandy sit between them in the truck. At the bar, paramedics load the wounded cop into an ambulance And the man from the bar says, you better hope he ain't dead, Sarge. Suddenly, Sarge goes into another flashback with the red lights of the ambulance strobing. And we can see Sarge's shadow and the shadow of a boom mic above him as he starts reading off all of his military information again. Dobbs! Fred! Sergeant First Class! Serial number RA-188-40644! Pallet stops by his gas station on the way to the shack to dump off his new pet in a jar. Apparently it's still alive because when he drops it in this jar of water, one of its slimy tentacles reaches up. I'm actually not sure how they did that. Yeah, I'm actually wondering why he, if it was still alive, he'd want to just tuck it nicely into his pocket. Because I feel like that thing would just bite right through you because it seems to have no issue with clothing. Up Maybe he put point. it tooth side out. <laughs> <laughs> it confuses it. Yeah. It's like a bee. It can only sting down. Yeah. Is that true? Just stay above the bees, folks. <laughs> Palance shows the kids a wound from his fight with the alien. They ask why he never told anyone, and he points out that nobody would believe him anyway. They find the shack again, and they all get out to approach it on foot. Greg tells Palance to watch for holes along the way, and Palance explains that Sarge has been digging them trying to catch the alien. But this so, alien is huge. Yeah, the hole that she fell in, though, was... One that Sarge dug yeah. to catch the alien. But this hole that this, you know, whatever, five foot six woman can easily get out of yeah. uh, is supposed to keep this... Seven foot tall yeah. alien. Right? Well, I guess I guess the the hope of, I mean, generally with like a tiger trap is you would have... There should be spikes, spikes in Spikes or something. But there wasn't. The there weren't. You, you just hope that he hurts himself in the fall and breaks yeah. an ankle. Because he's not used to Earth's gravity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Palance sees all the bodies strung up in the shed and looks like he's holding back an epic sneeze. <laughs> he backs out slowly and waddles back to Greg and Sandy and I really wanted him to be like, holy shit, you're serious. We gotta call the police. <laughs> like he thought they were fucking with him the whole time. But instead he tells them that they have this alien right where they want him. He has to come back for his food eventually. Everyone in this scene looks like they're freezing their asses off. Uh, also, did we establish that he's eating them? Like... This is all the, his assumptions yeah, that he's made. It's, it's just what he is uh, hypothesizing. But this creature is obviously capable of 
interstellar space travel. So I feel like he probably brought some snacks and he's going to be okay if he doesn't come back to yeah. this shed. He's better prepared than the hunter from the beginning of the film. He brought stuff along. <laughs> he doesn't just drink funny smelling water. <laughs> and read books. <laughs> like an idiot. Suddenly the meat frisbees float out of the darkness and connect with Palance's leg. He tells them to save themselves before taking out his knife again to slash at the bizarro band-aid. Greg and Sandy run through the woods, barely ducking under passing frisbees, which are now glowing around the edges because it's nighttime. Palance gets the latest flesh patch off, and it makes a cartoon pop as he slashes at it. <laughs> Palance seems immune to these things compared to other people. Greg and Sandy come up to the road, and a car blasts right past them. A second car, though, is a police car, and they hop in the back seat. They tell the cop what's going on, and eventually notice that Sarge is the one driving the police car, hinting that he probably got the gun back from Leo and likely killed someone back at the bar on the way to stealing this police car from the murdered responding officer earlier. Palance grabs a bunch of shit from his office and throws it in his truck, wires and explosive-looking stuff. The kids plead with Sarge to take them back to the shack to help Palance, but he doesn't believe a word they have to say because he's decided that they are alien shapeshifters. Palance drags his bomb supplies back to the shack, and Sarge wrestles the kids out of the car to the side of the road and points the gun he shouldn't have at them. He demands they explain the invasion strategy, and after repeatedly denying it, Greg gives up and just starts telling him the plan in detail, even drawing up maps of the planet in the dirt. Sarge looks amazed and terrified when the alien starts spelling out the actual plan. I feel like this was not smart on his part no because now you're never going to convince him that you're not an alien right i don't think he could backtrack this at any point so it's like he might have killed you as you tried to convince him that you weren't an alien but now he's definitely going to kill yeah. you <laughs> the earth is divided into seven regions we expect the most resistance here when's all this going to begin the main striking force begins <clears throat> Greg tackles Sarge to the ground, but doesn't get the gun away from him or anything. Mm -hmm. And then he basically leaves Sandy to fend for herself as he runs off the side of the road. Sarge fires his gun after them as they jump over the railing and down an embankment. Sarge heads back to his patrol car, but suddenly we see Greg and Sandy climbing back up the hill to the road, and they jump over the railing again. So now they're back in the road right in front of Sarge and his car, and he chases them down the middle of the road going like five miles an hour. Yeah, that's It looks so like strange. the Karma Police music video. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't understand why they're doing this because they can easily get off the road and he can't. And that's the only place that he's going to be because he's in the car. Yeah. But they turn to jump off of a bridge into the river and Sarge fires a few rounds after them as we see them swim up on shore. Sandy apparently sprained her ankle in the fall, but luckily they stumble upon an empty house here. The light switch and the cat in the house are broken. <laughs> the cat goes like <laughs> as it's leaving because they couldn't they couldn't pick one cat sound, so they merged four of them. This whole house sequence goes on forever. Oh yes, I yes. Like they keep hinting at stuff happening. Yes, or or going to happen, and they keep resetting everything. Yeah, like, is there something in here? No, that that was four minutes. Yeah, and then like it's like 
there's a shattering of glass and they go downstairs and the doors open with the windows broken. It's like, must have been the wind. It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> Clearly someone broke into the house. Yeah. Why did we just spend seven minutes looking around not to find anything? <laughs> it's like, I don't remember turning that light on. Or it's like, yeah. I guess it must be getting to us, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, are you, are you absolutely out of your minds? Greg moves around the house just turning on all the lamps he can find. Sandy changes into dry clothes in a closet, and we cut to a POV of someone sneaking up on the house. Sandy finds a music box and starts crying because it reminds her of one Beth gave her for her ninth birthday. Greg sets Sandy down on the bed and moves to make some coffee. Five seconds later, Sandy is screaming, having woken up from a nightmare already? Yeah. They notice that the doors open and move slowly to investigate the kitchen and find nothing after like four or five minutes Mm -hmm. of screen time. Somehow, Greg forgets that they're checking the kitchen together and is terrified when he notices her behind him. He sees the kitchen sink running, but doesn't remember leaving it on. But who cares? Greg walks Sandy back to the bedroom, where he gestures to the light in the closet and says, Didn't I turn that out? Suggesting that maybe the alien is just running around the house flipping light switches and turning on (laughs) faucets just to fuck with them? Greg puts Sandy down to sleep again and moves to drink a cup of coffee in the living room. When Sandy hears a howl and wakes up frightened again. So we're right back where we were <laughs> yeah. the first time she woke up. Yeah. Maybe that old, maybe that part was the dream. Yeah. She moves to the living room and finds him dead with a zombie starfish on his cheek in a recliner. She starts screaming and the lights in the room start strobing crazily. Suddenly we see a seven foot tall alien in the corner of the room for the first time. It's raising an arm towards her as she runs off. And then she leaves the house but immediately turns right back into a different door and comes back into the house to hide in a dark room downstairs. The alien finds her immediately. I, I like when, I think it's right when she runs out of the house though, she like runs into a lamp and we get this close up shot of the alien hand, which is just a regular human hand, but like painted gray. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like making sure that that lamp has been stilled, you know, yeah. from its yeah. swinging it's like, back and forth. Like disorienting. The alien starts pushing its fingers through a board toward her until Palance starts shooting at it. He just pops up and sticks his gun through a window to shoot at the alien, and he drags Sandy out into the woods, explaining that the alien is also here to hunt us for sport. He says that he's got the upper hand now because he's hunting the alien, and the alien doesn't know. I would be quieter about that. He brings her back to the shed and shows her through the gun scope that he's piled a bunch of sticks of dynamite against the outside of the shack. I probably would have put them inside to maintain some surprise. Suddenly Sarge sneaks up on them, and accuses them of being shapeshifters again. You can't fool me. You're not Joe Taylor. The Joe Taylor I know was a man. You took over his body. I hate to think what you aliens did to the real Joe Taylor. Because Joe Taylor, I guess, is the Jack Palance character's name. I'm just going to keep calling him Jack Palance. Palance charges him and tries to wrestle the gun away. In the middle of the fight, the alien appears by the shed, and Sarge turns his sights on it. Approaching slowly with the gun, the alien lazily tosses a pair of ninja-throwing starfish at Sarge and gets him right in the nips, and Sarge collapses <laughs> dead. This is very anticlimactic end for Sarge. Yeah. Palance says the alien isn't close enough to the shack, so he starts taking pot shots at it, and he hits it in the shoulder, rupturing its alien bladder. <laughs> it just gushes fluid. <laughs> It 
it hucks another meat circle at him and palance just nonchalantly cuts it off his jacket because he doesn't care about these things anymore he i like that palance goes to throw it back at the alien but it just lazily flops to the ground uh I thought the plan was to hide and wait for it to go back in the shed, not to somehow scare it into the building, mm-hmm. clearly littered with explosives from the outside. Palance takes another flesh pancake to the back, and this time, he can't reach it with the knife. And Sandy just clutches uselessly to his jacket. Palance tells Sandy it's up to her now, once he gets the alien in the shack, and he charges full speed past it, shouting, It's like the end of a weird Rocky movie. Yeah. Uh, once the alien is close enough to the shack, he tells Sandy to push the plunger, but it doesn't work the first time because the wires have come loose. So she reconnects them, replunges. And the alien body just crumbles into a pile next to the burning shack. And it's clearly like, a costume on a stick yeah yeah <laughs> but uh she's successfully incinerated all the evidence of the murders and we but presumably there's an alien spacecraft either landed or in orbit or somewhere nearby waiting probably for a invisible pickup. we'll find it in centuries we close on a shot of the stars and a voiceover from sarge insisting that we ain't alone in the universe you think with all those stars out there we're the only things that exist well, I got news for you. We ain't. We ain't alone. And that's the end of our film. Our director here was Graydon Clark. He's a writer, director, producer of a whole pile of schlock exploitation and black exploitation films in the early 70s through the late 90s. He's still working. Before this, the only film of his I'd seen was Joysticks, which has played at the New Beverly in the past. It's a fun one. It's like a teen comedy. The writer here was Lynn Freeman. This is Lynn Freeman's only credit. The other writer was Daniel Grodnick, who has an uncredited story by on Terror Train later this year, and was a producer on Christmas Vacation and Powder. Hmm. The other writer was Bennett Tramer, who is credited here as Ben Nett, which is just his first name split in two pieces. (laughs) Basically just this. uh, He did something called Kid Co. in 84, and then hundreds of episodes of Saved by the Bell. Uh, and then Steve Mathis was the last writer. Uh, now he has mostly gaffer credits on a bunch of really awesome shit, uh, mostly with Dean Kundi. Halloween's one through three, Rock and Roll High School, Roller Boogie, The Fog, Galaxy in a Fade to Black, Escape from New York, DC Cab, Back to the Future, Teen Wolf, Funny, I Shrunk the Kids, Glory, The Rocketeer, Mrs. Doubtfire, Clear and Present Danger, Moulin Rouge, The Squeakwell, and lately Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Wonder Woman 1984, Godzilla vs. Kong. So still working very regularly. Electronic realization here was provided by Dan Wyman, who had the same credit for The Fog earlier this year. wonderful, weird credit. Jack Palance was Joe Taylor. He was in Angel's Brigade with Graydon Clark the year before, Graydon Clark directing. Uh, He was Jack Wilson in Shane. He was Yves Perret in Tango and Cash. We'll have him again later this year as Voltan in Hawk the Slayer. He's also Grissom in Batman, Curly in City Slickers, and Curly's twin brother in City Slickers 2. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Martin Landau was Fred Serge Dobbs. We had him earlier in our Patreon review of They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. He's Leonard in North by Northwest. 
Judah Rosenthal in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, Rufio in Cleopatra, General Adlon in Meteor, and he's probably best known for his Oscar-winning role as Bella Lugosi in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, and he worked again with director Graydon Clark on The Return. I don't know how you can say a character name of Rufio and not just go, Rufio! I don't know. I also, uh, once again got confused between our 70s and 80s movies and i'm like why does he look so different <laughs> oh yeah 10 years <laughs> cameron mitchell played the hunter uh he's tom brookman in how to marry a millionaire he's jigger cragen in carousel and he has 241 acting credits yeah dating back to the mid 40s a lot of stuff neville brand was leo he plays duke in stalag 17 boyd kane in kansas city confidential and Kaminsky in Tora Tora Tora, Lieutenant Kaminsky. And we had him earlier this year as Major Marvin Groper in the Ninth Configuration. That's the guy who was tired of dressing like a Nazi. Yeah. He's got a very, very identifiable face yes. and voice. Sue Ann Langdon was Aggie, the bartender. She plays Rose Bernhardt in Zapped and Zapped Again. Yeah. She's Weird Al's Aunt Esther in uhf she's the one who convinces his uncle to give him the station that he wanted a game of cards ralph meeker was dave he plays corporal philip paris in paths of glory and captain Stuart kinder in the dirty dozen and this was his final film larry storch was the scoutmaster. he's glenn purcell in airport 75 and he plays the guru in blake edwards sob next year i think he's best known though as corporal agarn from f troop yes he has a long television career. I loved F Troop. <laughs> I never saw that one. It was a really goofy, fun show. What is the premise of it? It's like a like a Civil War-esque kind of like frontier fort and just like hijinks that happens amongst oh, okay. the, uh, the the soldiers there. So it's like Hogan's Heroes, but earlier. Yeah, but it's it's not like there's no, it's not like prisoners, but, but it's just a goofy military comedy, but yeah. set in a different period. Okay. David Caruso is Tom. He's Mitch in First Blood. He's Phil in Session 9. He's in Jade. He was on NYPD Blue. And uh, he's in CSI Miami. He's the focus of the... Yeah! ...meme. <laughs> <laughs> Taking off and putting on his sunglasses. Gotta, gotta throw in... Uh, more gotta for th- Caruso? Yeah, at least one more. What Kit- do you got? Kit Kat from Hudson Hawk. Okay, there you go. Because <laughs> they're all named after candy bars? Yeah. Jeffrey Sudson was the ambulance driver. He has lots of camera credits. For this year alone, he did Home Movies, Don't Go in the House, The Hearse, Private Eyes, and Schizoid, which we haven't gotten to yet. Kevin Peter Hall was the alien. Uh, Like I said before, he plays the Predator in the first Predator film. Actually, the first couple Predator films, I believe. He's the monster in Monster in the Closet. He's also Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. (laughs) Nice. And he reprised the role for 16 episodes of the TV series and then he's he's also big john in big top peewee so he's not always in a costume we watched the trailer together which we usually don't do we like we uh but it got it got us all very excited yeah um but (laughs) this is a nice transfer yeah it it did not live up to the expectations though i think the problem was it was all one note you know like what we saw in the trailer these little flesh-eating frisbees was all the movie had yeah we just kept seeing it over and over and actually not even that often we don't even have you're right a reason to fear the seven foot tall thing yeah because it never does anything other than throw these little hacky sacks at people yeah yeah that's weird 
But uh, the pacing is also very strange because it's just like, oh, these kids are on a a bunch of them are dead in the first like 20 minutes. Yeah. And then you have an hour and 10 minutes just following the, the two survivors around and they don't have much to do. I think you could easily cut this movie in half. Yeah. It, 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 it could be you could tighten it up so much because nothing happens for so long. Mm-hmm. I think this movie is why in these in these teen like slasher sci fi type movies. You have at least three couples, if not four couples. Yeah. So that you have more people to kill in the first act. Sure. Because when you kill half of the cast off camera, then there's, there's like nothing going yeah. on anymore. Um, it's also weird that Sarge was in the bathroom at that guy's gas station Randomly. earlier in the day. Yeah. Like they're not even like on friendly terms, it seems like. And he just walked into that guy's bathroom. I mean, an alien coming to hunt people is such a great premise. Like, I, I feel like whoever started that idea, you know, like really had something. And I don't know if it was just because they couldn't get the funding for it. If there was, if there was a draft that had more interesting things happen, but you have so much opportunity to bring in interesting weapons, interesting mm-hmm. perspectives from from the aliens' point of view about like what, why they're doing this, how they're doing this. Um, and, and we don't get any of that. Yeah, because the fleshy things seem to incapacitate and eventually kill. Except for one guy who just cuts them off like they're yeah. like they're just <laughs> stickers. He doesn't uh, care about them. But they but for some people it just seems to kill them. Some people it seems to dissolve them. Yeah. Uh and like cause like like not dissolve them completely, but they have like weird ooze. Yeah, they're dripping in the shit. Yeah. Uh and but like the one girl the 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 girl who ended up being topless not topless no no physical harm to her whatsoever yeah mm-hmm. she just it, i thought she was just standing there <laughs> <laughs> now is this an actual shed that's used by the water people like is that guy going to come in every once in a while to like check a meter and be like what the fuck happened in here <laughs> or did the alien write that on the door so that people wouldn't go in there <laughs> Because there's not a road anywhere near this thing. You wouldn't put this water main out in the middle of the woods. I don't know. We'd never explain the shed. We'd never explain the random house. I mean, what, did that belong to either of the guys in this movie? I, we don't know. I'm also assuming that, yeah, maybe it was Sarge's house or yeah. something. Um, I'm assuming that uh, the Jack Palance character has encountered this thing like on a previous visit. not Not this visit because the wound that he has on his arm is pretty healed over hmm. and we see the bodies of every single person that's killed in the last 24 hours. Yeah. So I'm assuming this isn't his first run in with the thing, but I don't know how he knew that it had a shack or that it, he knew that it's eating people. Yeah. And given that Sarge is like a conspiracy theorist, at least of some kind, yeah, you think that like he would be more in Sarge's camp. Yeah, it's uh, weird for them to turn on each other yeah. halfway through it. I feel like once you had your hands on one of the uh, you know, flesh-eating frisbees, that's all you need. Yeah, bring like, that back into the bar. Everyone's going to believe you. Right. Yeah. That's all the evidence you really need. You don't need to go back in these woods and find the alien and blow him up. Like All you need to do is be like, they won't believe me because you guys all sound crazy. Well, now you got a thing in a jar. They'll believe you. Yeah, and it's weird, too, that, that Palance specifically is the one who's like, we have to hunt it ourselves because the police will never believe us until we have evidence. And it's like, you have a pocket full of evidence. Mm-hmm. You just cut one of these flapjacks off of the wall. Like, Just show that to the the police and they'll believe you that there's something weird going on 
And are you just going to blow up the bodies? Why didn't he just take the bodies back? I guess, like, where'd you get those dead bodies? It's like, no, I found them in a shack. It was, <laughs> it was aliens that killed yeah. them. Uh, maybe that was a... it's, it's like the day after the hearse where she's just like, no, no, no. There's a crazy invisible car that did all this damage. <laughs> I didn't kill these dead people in my house. Right. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Jess, up or down on this one? Oh, it's down. There, yeah. There's just not much going on in this movie. Um it, it, which is a shame because I we were excited when we watched the trailer. It, you know, it it had it had a potential. It was it's all the action spliced together, and it's got these great spinning frisbee shots toward yeah. camera. I mean, honestly, I could have cut this whole movie down to this that trailer, and that would have been good enough. Yeah, it's a good trailer. Uh, it's a down for me. Uh, I think Jack Palance and Martin Lando. I uh, hope they bought something nice. Yeah, <laughs> with with that sweet payout that they got for if this movie. If I had movie. to guess, it would be a lot of Nyquil on Jack Palance's part because <laughs> he looks like he's just about asleep in every scene. Um, but yeah, the the two of them, you know, they're they're talented actors, so mm-hmm. they're they're pulling it off. And uh, you know, but it, yeah, the, as, aside from being the obvious inspiration for the Predator, I would say this doesn't have a lot going for yeah. it. Yeah, and and it's weird because like. I, I would see this movie as like an ending or towards the end of a career for both of them, but both most, most of their fame, more famous movies came after. Yeah, way I, I mean, after. I was having flashbacks of Landau like wrestling with the octopus in the water. Yeah, in Ed Wood, I was like, that's that's what it feels like you were doing on this set. You were probably in your head pretending you were on the set of this movie mm-hmm. when you were playing Bella Lugosi fighting that octopus. It's a down for me, uh, aside from, like I said, in- inspiring Predator. There's there's not a reason, I would say, to see this. Although, I, I should also point out that the alien head is phenomenal. Um, the, the, it's it's a very standard, like, gray alien head. The, the, yeah, you know, like really bulbous. Skull, but it looks shape. great. Yeah. And it's Rick Baker, and you gave him the right amount of money, so it's going to look nice. But I thought that was actually pretty cool. Yeah, but give him an extra couple grand and have him design some really cool weapons or something. Yeah, just have, you know, a staff that does something with some cool visual effect. Because I just, I, I would have liked a couple different, like, varieties of kills yeah. in this movie. Where's this going? Jessica. Um, It's pretty low. I have it at 102 right now. It is just below Can't Stop the Music and just above Mother's Day. It's not very high. Uh, I have it at 106. Uh, that puts it just below Don't Answer the Phone and just above Loose Shoes. I have it at 105, so we're all pretty close to the same spot. Um, I have it just above Defiance and just under Stunt Rock. I think that's about it for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Breaker Morant, which IMDb describes like so. Three Australian lieutenants are court-martialed, for executing prisoners as a way of deflecting attention from war crimes committed by their superior officers. We leave you now with the trailer for Breaker Morant. South Africa, 1901. The British Crown sent an army to fight by the book against Dutch farmers who fought back 
any way they could. It's a new kind of war, George. It's a new war for a new century. <laughs> Lord Kitchener himself recognized the unorthodox nature of this warfare when he formed a special squad to deal with it. They were soldiers trapped between shifting coats of honor. New orders from Kitchener. No prisoners. The gentleman's war is over. It's wrong, mate. You know it is. I just follow orders. Harry Harbord Morant, Lieutenant Bushveld Carboneers. They've been quite effective, sir. Very effective. We've just arrested three of them for shooting Boer prisoners and a German missionary. This man killed Captain Hunt. He will be executed immediately. They mutilated him. They mutilated him with knives while he was still alive. They were three men pitted against the army for which they fought. We didn't carry military manuals around with us. We were out on the veldt fighting the Boer the way he fought us. I'll tell you what rule we applied, sir. We applied rule 303. We caught them and we shot them under rule 303. One man defended them against an empire. Now these orders were issued, sir. And soldiers like myself and these men here have had to carry them out, however damned reluctantly. Breaker Morant, a tale of honor and injustice. From the director of The Getting of Wisdom. If these three Australians have to be sacrificed to help bring about a peace conference, small price to pay. I quite agree, sir. Though I doubt the Australians shared our enthusiasm. You're a liar! Order! Hey, future applauders. Do you like talking about movies? Like smart movies? Dumb movies? Science fiction movies? Horror movies? Fantasy movies? Do you like listening to people talk about a movie longer than it would take you to actually watch the movie? Do you sit with your friends and rant at great length about things you're passionate about? You may be interested in Shocked and Applaud. Join us while we go through peculiar movies, traditional movies, movies that we just like, movies that we find are sort of like, huh? Do we follow somebody on social media and then they posted about a movie and we're just going to watch it now? Sure, why not? Our podcast is completely unscripted, so you're going to stumble through things with us because we stumble a lot. We're going to laugh. We're going to talk about what's problematic, but really it comes down to talking about movies. You can visit us at shockedandapplaud.com, on Twitter at shockedapplaud, and Facebook at shockedandapplaud. We hope to see you there.